Hi folks, Alistair here. Welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next Podcast, the show where I speak with the world's top creatives about creating a life of their own design. If you love listening to these chats, go to comingupnext.com.au where you can find links to subscribe, rate and review the show. Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. I don't think I haven't done a uh, a podcast in a Buddhist center yet. So this is <laughs> a first. This is a first, also on the floor. This is another first. So thank you for giving me a couple of firsts today, Kim. An absolute pleasure. I was quite taken when you said to me last week when we caught up about how. At the age of 19, you or you read this interview that you had given at the age of 19 mm. and something that you'd said about wanting to become a teacher and wanting to um, create a school for actors. Uh, and it seems as though that, that kind of became an unwavering sort of um, part of who you were then and who you, who you are now. Do you remember that kind of moment, that kind of part of your life and career? It's interesting. I think there's something about these imprints that children come in with and tendencies that they may have. And if they're given a a ground to be nurtured, they have the possibility of coming to fruition. I mean, as a child, I was always the kid that would get all the neighbourhood kids together, bring them together to create something. So I was a networker at a very young age. Um, I remember when school would finish, I would drag all the kids back to my place. So I was clearly unbelievably bossy and I would bring them back to my place. And I think they were coming back to have a swim, but I would then say, we have to play school and that we just finished a day of school and then I'd be the teacher. Um, so it's interesting. Those things were kind of already there. I remember when I was at drama school in London, I remember I was, I think more interested in watching what was happening on the floor with my um, classmates and what they were doing and I would sit and I would think if I was the teacher what would I now say to them what would my feedback be I was always looking to see from a technique perspective what I'd been learning how then I would kind of apply that to the work the actor had done and I think I was kind of neurotic as an actress um, and and more self-consumed that made me feel happy to be So at a certain point, I went to Queensland. My father was ill with cancer and there was virtually no acting work. I did some work at the Queensland Theatre Company and some work out of the studios, but essentially there was very little work, so I started teaching. And from the moment I went into a classroom, there was a sense that I had come home. There was something about it that felt right to me. So it was very funny to read that article in a yellowed kind of page of the age (laughs) that had been kept by my auntie in some kind of scrapbook. You know, this... And I was actually such a gorgeous-looking young woman. I couldn't believe it because at the time you don't think that. But you look back and you go, yep, this is as good as it gets. Um, And then I just read the article and it said uh, my dream was to learn about technique and to teach acting. And at 19, my career was rising. So it was so bizarre that that was the ambition at 19. And I didn't remember saying that. So when I read it, it was kind of how interesting that that's what I said at 19 when... It was years, years after that that I started teaching. So I think there might be something in there that 
lives in us and just given the right time and the right um, conditions, you know, will manifest. Kim Crajus knew from age 19 that she wanted to teach actors. Following on from an incredibly successful and sustained career, which included studying in Australia, the USA and the UK, as well as performing on stage and screen, she retired from acting in pursuit of teaching. In 2009, she opened 16th Street Actors Studio, which has gone on to become one of Australia's foremost acting studios. You can find out more information on the school at www.16thstreet.com.au. You're the one of the founders and artistic director of, of 16th Street, which has become one of Australia's foremost acting studios. And I suppose uh, along the way, you know, you, you yourself have studied at some of the finest schools in the world, as well as having performed on some of the greatest stages and in some of the, you know, most desirable kind of circumstances in terms of film and television. How do you kind of feel that you're, you were set up to create this studio by your experiences in these kind of institutions and on these kind of jobs? I certainly went to one of the greatest acting schools in the world and at the time, this was back in the 70s, it was a revolutionary school in what, what it was offering. It was both the British European model of training, a theatrical tradition, alongside of American technique and they brought them together in the most astonishing way. Um, you know, I look back on some of the notes I wrote as a young actress in those classes or a young acting student and then I had the privilege of seeing a documentary about that school that I went to, the Drama Centre, and I, I, it was just incredible. And the good news is I think we knew it at the time. And it... Um, so I was set up, I think, very well. What I was really set up with, and funnily enough, I was just sitting in the meditation room before you came and kind of making sure that I was kind of going to be prepared for the, <laughs> the interview and, you know, try and speak somewhat truth as opposed to it's so easy just to say things that sound good or mm. whatever. And I was thinking the change that I experienced, we had an ethic you know, um, we were there every single day from, you know, eight in the morning till eight at night. I was working uh, in a nightclub until four o'clock in the morning and I would still get to school. And I just noticed sometimes the resilience in young people has been diminished. That's what it feels like. They, uh, yes, resilience and the energetic quality seems somehow they can kind of fall like a pack of cards very easily. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we have to take responsibility. My generation has to take somewhat responsibility because we're your, the parents. <laughs> and maybe we, you know, every generation tries to make things better for their kids. And sometimes in making things better, we strip them of their coping powers. I think we've certainly been responsible. Uh, the education system feeds into that as well. Um, in my day, it was okay. You got an A, B, C, D, E, which was a fail, and I got a few of those. You got gold stars or you didn't. You came first, second or third, or you didn't, and we got used to that. 
that seemed very reasonable, but it now seems everybody has to get a kangaroo star from, for just literally having a tidy desk. Mm. You know, it, do you know what I mean? It's, it's like a, it's, it's the capacity just to go... I don't know, I had a, an actor who you know, is working 12-hour days or 16-hour days, and they are long days. But I know I did that, and um, I kept showing up. But now it's kind of, it's so easy just to, everything, to give yourself a kind of a reason or excuse just to not keep fronting up and showing up. And to me it's resilience and it is willpower. It is willpower. And I think willpower is probably more important than um, other qualities. And I think there's a reduced willpower. And I don't mean to be kind of negative, but I do I do see things and I take responsibility, certainly generationally, um, the speed of life that has had a massive effect, mm. a massive effect, and that's obviously, I mean, people talk about it, technology, um, the unwillingness or the inability or to sit down and just be with oneself in reflection and contemplation, to just take a walk. Um, I think people feel like those things mean they're not doing anything. So this, uh, yeah, I think we're, stripping ourselves of the fabric so how can we shift that kind of paradigm to a more active more active is probably not the right word but a more um willing kind of uh, energy i suppose well i guess it's quite important you know when you're very clear when you're young what you want and I mean, you know, as you know, this is the basis of acting. One of the hardest questions to ask or to get the answer to or to discern is what a character wants. Because great writers bury that. It's not kind of up on the surface. So I think we're equally as complex. We often don't know what we want. But we often don't spend time in really contemplating. We're happy with kind of quick, pat, kind of often shallow responses to that question. But I think if you go very deeply what you want with with that question of what you want I think that can be a bit of a a rudder um, a compass and so I would say there is no substitution for sitting and developing a very honest relationship with yourself and most people um, we struggle with that really struggle with that because it's quite painful to sit in the silence of one's own the recesses of one's mind and start to actually and one's heart so I would say that's the first thing, understanding what's important to you. And I think when you have that, you know, I was speaking to um, a group of actors the other day and you know, they were talking about, you know, doing sensory work and it can be incredibly laborious at times because you, you're training your imagination and when the imagination's a little kind of numbed, it takes a while to wake it up and sometimes you have to start with very kind of banal things, you know, the feel of a, a cup that's there and then it's not there and what it feels like viscerally and the smell of something. But I understand, you know, that people often talk about this with actors and I'm kind of riffing here going off maybe on another tangent, so pull me back if I am. But I often think about, you know, and people talk about this, for a musician, for a pianist, they, they have to practice scales repeatedly, but they have Mozart and Beethoven and Bach just there and they have an understanding of the correlation between those scales and those wonderful composers and presumably the desire one day to be able to play them. But actors, it's a different thing because it sometimes feels so intangible, this thing called acting and what is it? Because it's, you know, that 
that mm, determination to develop craft. So that's that's willpower. So I'm trying to think in relationship to your question, how do we develop more willpower? I know when I want a cup of coffee, a nice latte, it doesn't take much willpower to drive (laughs) to the coffee shop because I want it. So I think the developing of that and the clarity of that. And I think there are a lot of actors who don't really, really want to Mm. be actors. Do you think that want though can create an attachment that might be and yeah. now, now I'm going to take it down another level it can create an, un, an attachment that might be unhealthy in the pursuit of a creative life absolutely you said something when you were in the office the other day the thing that you found really across the board when you were working in England on a couple of films of late and you were talking about the actors and you mentioned Mark Rylands what they understand fundamentally is it's a job very satisfying job but it's a job. And I asked an actor the other day, I said, what do you think the job of the actor is? And he said, oh, you can, you can do things that you can't do in real life. And I said, well, that's a perk of being an actor. But it's actually not the job of the actor. The job of the actor is a certain set of skills that you have to have in order to accomplish the job. So um, that attachment, I think, comes from uh, one's own psychology to be loved, to be validated, to be significant and they're the issues that when acting the job it's like you know those things are attached to it that becomes an agonizing proposition Mm. so the want then is not actually about doing a job the want is about like you say seeking validation or seeking love or what you think it will give you and I was speaking to um a friend of mine the other day and he said something it was a general statement but I thought it was interesting he said most actors start acting to fill this hole in their heart. I thought, my God, that's a kind of an interesting proposition. Um, And there might be something to that, a great need to be seen and heard, but personally I think everybody needs to be seen and heard and looking for validation. And it might be true, but I suspect that unless the artistry around the job, i.e. developing the real vocal skill and the physical skill and the physical imagination and the the psychological insight and the ability to kind of grapple with the hidden meanings that lie in a text and what, a, what the story is actually about and what you are kind of bringing to that, I think unless all of those things become way more interesting to you than yourself and, you know, the need for mummy and daddy's love, which I don't think will ever be filled through acting, I just don't think acting has the capacity to hold the weight of that. And we all know that thing. I mean, everybody's looking for mummy and daddy's love. and <laughs> You know you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But I think that's in the realm of a, going to a good therapist or in the realm of developing a spiritual practice or in the realm of whatever other pathways you might take to actually deal with those psychological issues. And we all have them. Mm. But I, I think that's where I think, I suspect the attachment um, can get tremendously unhealthy with this profession. Were your parents uh, supportive uh, of your creative endeavor? I think I came out of a generation where security was tremendously important. And so my mother just wanted me to be secure and happy. But I do think she realized that she had a child who was quite different. Now all children are different. But things that seemed important to her and important to my sister didn't seem very important to me. Um, and I came from a middle-class background, which is obviously a very privileged background. I went to a very good school. I had um, a lot of opportunity and 
you know, I could have done anything I really wanted to do. But this was something that was from a really, really early age. So, yep, she took me along to tap dancing classes and singing classes and, you know, always made sure if I was putting on a concert that there were cookies and milk for everybody. You know, I mean, so I got that support. When I went to London, she was an incredible support to me. So in the ways that most matter, absolutely. But, I mean, she also said, are you sure you don't want to be a librarian? I mean, she kind of gave me the alternative. Um, And that was very clear. I didn't want to go that path. And, you know, there were times when I'll never forget she would look at me and she would say, I really do not know how you do this. She said, I, she, um, she was talking about rejection actually, and she said, I just do not know how you have the capacity to deal with this amount of rejection. And then, but she was always there on opening nights and I could see it was kind of, when I look back now, I mean, she's passed away long ago, but I remember just looking at her face and there was something in the way she looked at me, which was, you could tell this was something that was quite kind of remarkable to her, that her child could, you know, I've now grown up, but had this um, capacity to be on a stage in front of people or, you know, do the things I did when I did get the jobs that I enjoyed doing. So, yeah. But I knew I was loved. And I don't think you can ask for more than that in any capacity. Mm. Yeah. But to be honest, even if she'd said no, it wouldn't have stopped me. (laughs) I was clear on that. Do you remember what your first professional job was? Yes, the mysterious treasure of the Ballarat Bunyip. I was 17 years of age and it was a pantomime in Ballarat at Sovereign Hill and um, it was the Arena Theatre. It was a theatre here in Melbourne and I did uh, and I played Sarah. Isn't it funny how you can remember these, the first things? That was my first professional job. I actually earned money to do that. Yeah, I was 17. Do you remember your first amateur job? Never worked amateur. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At school, school plays. But no, I never, I never, I never worked for nothing. Mm. And, and I'm not saying that there's any problem with working for, but I didn't for some, no, I didn't. Mm. No. What, what do you think of the concept of working for nothing? Obviously, in this <clears throat> day and age, well, perhaps in any day and age, it's, it's kind of a necessary evil as part of a, again, creative life. But there is something to be said, I think, at a certain point of putting a real value on your skills and your time and what you have to offer. It's really interesting. It's such a different time, Elle. You know, I went to drama school and, I mean, I never, ever thought that there wouldn't be work waiting for me. I mean, you know, that's the kind of, I guess, one, the naivety, but also the kind of cocksuredness of youth. I mean, I just absolutely, I was going to work, it was... There was no doubt I was going to get work if I wanted it. Um, and I did, and I did get work. Uh, so the idea I had to create my own or I had to do do anything other than just go to the audition and be good. And chances are if I was good and I did a good job and, um, you know, I was the right person for the right job, I got the role. My generation of peers, we worked. We were working actors. So we're in a different time now. A very, very different time. And I would say, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, said, you have to really be in love with this. Don't do it for the money. I think those great actors um, always did it because of the love of it. And then if they were very good at it, they ended up doing very well. And then, you know, celebrity and and, and what that affords you followed. 
um, which is money and choice. So I think it's a different time and I think you just have to get very real with yourself. You know, I, I think it's, here you go. I think if you're going to ask somebody to spend $35, and I mean I'm talking in the independent scene, forget the kind of, you know, main stage scene of $85, $90, $100 to go and see you at the theatre, please make sure that they're getting the $35 worth. And I think so many people now regard themselves as having skills and to me they don't. They don't. They just have a love of it and they think because they've done a little bit of training that, you know, everybody's ready for them to, you know, bust into the theatre and I don't know, I just think we, we've become very content with very little in our expectations of the theatre. So yeah, charge, absolutely. And, 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 and yeah, you want to make a living out of this. But make sure you also have the stuff that people would want to pay you for. Off of value. Hey? Off of value. What do you mean? Like, uh, you know, off of value for your money. If you're paying, if someone's yeah. paying $35, yeah. you want them to come out feeling like they got a bargain. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's a nice way of putting it. But that's the way we feel in everyday life when we actually kind of rock up to something. Mm. You know, if we go and we, we spend a huge amount of money at a very expensive restaurant. See, I love food analogies. And we spend a lot of money at a very expensive restaurant. By God, the service had better been absolutely crackerjack and that food just beyond reproach. Mm. Otherwise, we're very resentful. Well, I am. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas if I go somewhere and I get a very good, you know, little feed and it's lovely and the people are pleasant and the price was just right, I will go back. So there you go. And I think sometimes just because actors want to act, they think that's enough. I don't think it is. So what do you think it requires? Well, first of all, you have to really want this, but really want this. Dedication, real dedication. Willingness to do the work required. I don't think there's a great actor alive that doesn't have a great voice. And yet, uh, often actors spend little time developing a really powerful vocal instrument. And I don't mean powerful just in loud. I mean something that has a, a voice that has the ability to express nuance. A voice that doesn't get kind of strangled when emotion begins to manifest a voice that has the ability to express ideas. And I see very few actors who are willing to put that kind of work in physically. A body that is not just free and open, but a body that has the capacity and the imaginative kind of ability to transform. I mean, I was watching Daniel Day-Lewis the other night. I mean, that is astonishing. And, and yes, I'm sure he came out of the womb with the tendency and the predisposition for something. But there's no doubt this man works. I think often actors think it kind of just happens magically. It doesn't. He had a, a talent, but he's nurtured that talent. Well, that work is to me. I mean, that is astonishing what he does. It, it's really something. And his desire to understand at the depth of the being of any character he's playing is phenomenal. You know, I know he's received a bit of flack about how far he'll go, but when I realise the reason he does that is because he has a deep, deep desire to understand. And anybody in life who has a deep, deep de desire to understand others, I think you would say what they're also developing into being is really well-rounded, tremendously insightful and compassionate individuals. And I would say, just from what I, when I watch him being interviewed, I mean, the qualities that he seems to exude, humility being one of them, 
is really exemplary. Uh, so I think there's some of the qualities. Mm. Um, talent will only take you so far. In fact, talent's probably one of the smallest pieces of the pie, I think. Talent's almost like the springboard into the dive, but you need to have all of the training and, and the willingness to kind of work, I think, to kind of... I mean, I'm sure there are examples of people who are in the right place at the right time with the right talent. Sure. But generally <clears throat> speaking, if, if you, I think if you combine talent with an entitlement, then it's not going to take you very far. Oh, I've got to tell you something. About to turn 60, entitlement, that word, did not... Ex- of course, it existed, but... It was not a part of the fabric of my upbringing, entitled. Mm. I can't tell you what entitlement does to me. I think it is one of the most tedious, boring qualities for any individual to possess. Mm. And for actors to feel entitled is just, it's like, I can't even begin to tell you. (laughs) That's one of the qualities right now you might want to actually reduce if it lives inside of you and our generation have made you feel very entitled very entitled um but just going back yes talent there's no question there are people with with talent who get jobs immediately but then there's longevity i'll never forget i spoke to judy davis a long 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 time ago and um it was when nicole kidman was just starting to work i can't remember what film she'd done but i asked judy i said what do you think of Nicole Kidman she said yeah she seems fine but speak to me in 20 years time I think she understood how the talent would be realized or revealed was going to be something that really would show up uh, over the course of time and Nicole Kidman's quite an impressive young woman I think she went to the ATYP as a young girl then clearly I mean her career happened very quickly I think she was 16 when she first started working but she on the side while she was working, kept taking class and training. So training and working, training and working, training and working. It's very impressive. So I think she's probably put herself in quite a, a good position in the sense of what well, she has. I mean, she's sustained a career for quite a time now. But there are a lot of other young actresses that, or actors that get a kind of shot at it. But then where are they now? Mm probably comes back to what we were talking about earlier about that will that and that willingness mm. kind of underpinning and I suppose uh, you know it's kind of a work ethic uh, mm. as well as I think it's even more than that Al mm. I think it's actually something very deeply embedded inside of human beings and I don't even know if I certainly don't think you can teach this they need to act need this is their vocation um, yeah, I think it's something like that. And I'm not talking about need to act so, you know, everybody will think I'm terrific. I don't mean that kind of dysfunctional need, but there's something I think they're deeply, deeply impelled to do this. I remember Joanna Woodward was once asked by a young actress. I always say actresses. <laughs> I don't know why. It could have <laughs> been an actor in another life, but it was an actress. Should I do this? And she said, and she was at a forum, I think, at a drama school. And should I do this? And she said, and Joanna Woodward said, if there's anything else you can do, do it. But I think, you know, and I knew this was not the only thing I could do. 
So that's why it was actually rather easy for me to stop acting. Mm. But when you have to do it, it's just kind of, it's, it's who you are. It's what you were meant to be doing. Um, it's how you make meaning of the world. It's your particular offering to the world. It is something that, yeah, vocational, I think. And so, yes, but those people tend to have work ethic. Hugh Jackman has a work ethic. It's prodigious. And any of these actors, it's not just by chance they get there. You know, it's that, it's how they express themselves and then they combine that with not just the talent that they have but a work that, work that they want to do. You, you mentioned that, you know, you, you did retire from acting, <laughs> which was, uh, was 2008, around that sort of period. I think I was even younger. Look, if the truth be known for me, the kind of, I was pretty clear by about, God, if I'm really honest, late 30s. You know, I was doing, I was working and I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. Um, In what way were you not happy? Well, actually, I'd have to say, I think you spoke about your spiritual, did you say spiritual crisis? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mine kind of hit in my late 20s. You know that, and I'm not really big on um, astronomy, uh, not astronomy, what astrology. Is it? astrology, that's right. <laughs> Clearly not very big on it. <laughs> and, um, and I knew there was, I think they talk about the Saturn return, there was something, and my life was really at a crossroads. And I think think now what I realized it was, was just actually it was asking me to really be very honest and to go internally and really begin that journey. And I'd always kind of read books, you know, Krishnamurti, I read, I was just sort of fascinated about why we exist and what the bloody hell are we doing here? What's the purpose of it, of it all? I wasn't somebody who just seemed content with, well, this is life and, you know, you get married and you have kids and it just didn't seem enough for me to be perfectly honest and I know now that was definitely some kind of spiritual yearning to make sense of the world to make sense of life to make sense of myself um, so that inevitably bleeds over into anything you're doing now I, I'm fairly confident now I, I don't think it was my path to be an actress so I'm delighted that I actually went on that path because it gave me something which had enormous meaning which was um, teaching and this um, extraordinary profession um, that I think at its best offers something immense to individuals but I think it definitely bled into my satisfaction of working but I think if I had known what I know now then uh, I probably would have continued being an actor I probably would have because I've just learned so many things that I just unfortunately didn't know at the time, which is it all starts and ends here in me. Mm. When did you f find Buddhism? Was it around that time that your mind started to be open to that? Yeah, I was. Um, I read the Tibetan book of living and dying. I was living in Queensland at the time with my because my father was very unwell. And I read this book and it was the most bizarre thing because I was raised a Catholic. Uh, I read it and it just, it was like I had read this before or I knew this before. That's what it felt like. So I've never been one to kind of, you know, have to kind of really wait too long. Once the impulse hits, I, I move. 
So I just looked for the closest Buddhist center, and as it turned out, it was in the Glasshouse Mountains, a beautiful place called Chenrezig. I went up there. I sat there. I watched these people. There was something about them that really impressed me, and the teachings made sense to me. And even though I'd had no kind of background in it before, and three months later, I was on a plane to Nepal. So that was kind of, and how old was I? I was 34, 35. Do you feel like uh, <clears throat> what, what, you, what you learned, what you're kind of constantly learning, the kind of practices and rituals that you embed into your life, do you feel as though they help you understand yourself and humanity and therefore your kind of creativity on a deeper level? I think the two go together, but please, I need to out myself. I'm the worst Buddhist I know. <laughs> you know, I really sometimes I kind of just think, oh, dear God. And I'm very grateful to the people who I live with who are all Buddhists in this Buddhist center kind of really who put up with me. I, I, I truly am the worst Buddhist I know. Um, but all that being said, I am surrounded by people who are tremendous role models. So even though I'm rather pathetic at it, I have great role models. And, you know, if the company you keep means anything, I'm in really good company. And, yes, there's no question, um, because you do, you start to understand your own mind and recognise how utterly insane you are <laughs> and how completely delusional you are. With that, every character ever written is operating in the same realm, the human realm. So you have an understanding of that. And I'd say probably less judgmental. I would say less judgmental. You know, I can still be highly reactive. I would say I still can sit and I, I, I know I'm not a grudge holder and I know I'm not somebody who um, can't forgive. And I think that's fundamentally because anything I like to think is out there in the world in somebody else, it's tenfold in me. Mm. So that helps you certainly when you're exploring character and when you're exploring plays the judgment factor really just quietens right down. I think, uh, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about Buddhism, but my understanding is the kind of underpinnings are around respect and gratitude and a kind of loving awareness of, um, of, of humans and humanity. I would say really, if you think of any spiritual traditions, including yours, Judaism, uh, and mine, which was, and I still regard myself as a Catholic, uh, they're all underpinned by that. Mm. I think they're, they're the commonalities between all spiritual traditions. Um, I think Buddhism has another kind of take on things. And I couldn't compare it to others because I, I'm not familiar with others except perhaps a little bit of my understanding of you know Christianity. Uh, but yeah, I think they're common to all. And to be honest, even without any spiritual traditions, I think I, anybody who lives well is living accordingly to those principles of kindness, respect, generosity, you know, I don't think you need a religion to to do that. Yeah. Though some of us do because we're pathetic at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you need the framework. Oh, God, yeah. Um, so after you did decide to hang up the boots <laughs> and, and kind of embark on a career as a teacher mm. what was your kind of uh, journey to the point of actually opening up your own school well I was doing a lot of teaching and really enjoying it with no responsibility whatsoever other than just rocking up and doing it and it was fabulous 
but then I was looking at a lot of actors and there was just a wonderful sense of community being with those actors in the room and I got very close to them and I think you know a few of those were on the first full-time program at 16th Street, Emily O'Brien Brown, Tara Hazel um, and uh, Fabio. So there were a few of them that I'd kind of known and worked with, um, Arthur. So there was something about it but I could tell there was no, it didn't feel to me like there was a process of work certainly what I think is to me the the most basic definition of technique a way of working so I thought oh god this would be fabulous if you could really develop something where they could get into technique and then we could really illuminate the human condition and there was something about that that always seemed to me so thrilling and and if I'm really honest it is about for me connection and I think that that's something really important for me to acknowledge because uh, I think connection is something that I've sought all of my life it's been a very interesting journey for me the notion of connection. So I felt that with those actors in the room. Um, and then I was going to do it uh, with another studio and then they decided they didn't want to go ahead. So um, I started, and as you know, I was um, I approached Jamie Zamudio, who was a very impressive young man who was kind of self-taught in so many areas. And I said, why don't you come on and you handle the business side and I'll handle the creative side. So he did, we did, we were told we were insane. <laughs> Everybody said, why would you open up another kind of acting school? And for some reason, we didn't listen to everybody who said we were insane. We just, with faith, moved forward. I had teachers that I, either I knew, who I always thought would be really interesting to bring into a studio, or I went and watched them work. And I guess the truth be known, if I had had a whole lot of teachers who were trained the way I had trained, I would have brought all of those into the studio, but they just didn't exist in Melbourne. But I was very interested in this notion of ways of working. And um, and I think there are commonalities to all of them, even though they can be perceived as different. There are commonalities. So I just said about who understands technique and how can we bring that into one environment? It was just that I loved being in a room full of actors. I really love the potential of actors. I, like others, inclusive of Mike Elfrids, who we've just had out here, I do think actors, it is incumbent upon them, the idea that we would develop qualities, human qualities together, and that then came into the work, that we really had something to say, back with the whole notion that actors at one point were shamans, that there was something very, very sacred about what was happening um, in a theatre space, which, of course, now is almost non-existent. It's not what you see when you go to the theatre. It's not what you experience. So um, I think you have to work even harder to believe that it's worth cultivating, that it's possible. You know, and this whole notion, it's it's tougher than it ever was before, This this thing between art and the business art and commercialism they're really challenging polarities really challenging polarities how will you how will you know if six that 16th street has been a successful endeavor look all i can say is any person who has worked at 16th street over the course of these eight years has given their all brought the best what they could do Every single individual has made a contribution. So quite frankly, it could finish tomorrow and I feel like we've all been a success. But there is more I wish to do. Before I pass this mortal coil, I truly wish to see if it's possible 
that if you create the right environment, time and process is the focus, not result, what kind of theatre can be created? So I am on a, f- a further mission in myself. And if I can make that work, and I will make it work, I will do everything to make that work. I want to just believe, because you see, when I was a young actress, I was speaking to a friend last night I went to drama school with. We saw Richard Third, the Ruster Valley Company out of Georgia in the USSR do Richard Third. I can't tell you, I was in my second year at the Drama Centre. It was at the Roundhouse. I sat there and I thought, dear God, is this what is possible? And I've seen that maybe three times in my life, theatrically. And that's just not enough for me. Mm. Yeah, I remember seeing Jerusalem on Broadway. Did you um, see that? Yeah, with Mark Rylance in the lead. Ian Rickson's production. Ian Rickson's production, uh, 2011, I think it was. And it was that kind of experience, as you describe. (sighs) Just my, and that's the benchmark, absolutely, for me. I know. Um, And kind of get glimpses of it here and there, but never a kind of full, or rarely a full experience of it. No, that's right. It's like a sausage roll on the banquet table, but you don't get the banquet. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, I know, I know. And, and, you know, there are reasons why I'm sure um, certain things occur. I don't think it's by chance. I really don't think it's by chance. You know, like there's time that's afforded. There's um, a director who has the skill and the deep insight of a piece of work. There's a great piece of work. There are the actors who have the skill Certain things have to be in place for something to come together. Because I often go to the theatre and I see very talented actors. It's it's not that we're they're lacking in the talent. That's not the the issue, or the great plays, or I'm sure indeed you know directors. But there's just there's something just when you see it, it is unmistakable. Like what you just expressed. The Russians do it consistently. The Russian companies. Why do you think that is? Well, one is time. They spend sometimes six months to a year. I mean, when I was told what the Ruster Valley Company did, I mean, I think it was a year. They'd been in rehearsal for Richard III, so that's got to do something, you know. But So they had this pull against art and commercialism. You know, you think of the major theatre companies, I mean, my God, the overheads are immense. Certainly running 16th Street, I, I'm sure people think we're raking in the dough, but that's not the case. I mean, the, the, the overheads, the direct and indirect costs of doing these things are immense, you know, absolutely immense. So unlike, just like the theatre companies, they're immense. Um, and time, they can only afford. It's affordability, what they can actually afford. You know, I was walking through... You know, at the Sydney Theatre Company, I was looking, we're right on the harbour, it's exquisite. So anybody who doesn't think this costs, I mean, you, you know, this is expensive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But I'm just really optimistic. I'm really optimistic. And even if I only see it once, what I mean see it once, I have seen it. But if my potential to contribute to something where it happens once... You know, and then, the, and then the truck hits me. I'll be really happy. I'll be really happy. I will because it's so easy to be an armchair critic. Very easy. Absolutely. Go put your money where your mouth is yeah. and go, okay, really? All right, we'll step up. Mm. You know? Because people are doing it. You've got to, your hat's, your hat's got to be off to people who are doing it. But I just want to see what happens under a different set of circumstances. 
Well, I look forward to seeing how that manifests me and how it unfolds. Me too. Maybe you'll help me. Absolutely. <gasps> you see? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much, Kim, for, uh, for chatting with me. I, I end all of my conversations with one question, yes. which is what makes you silly? I guess I've never really, probably because I haven't had children, I haven't really grown up. <laughs> if I, wanted, I think kids make you grow up and I haven't had them I think that playful kind of quality is something that too many people are too quick to kind of give up though yeah maybe I, I certainly love a laugh I'll go anywhere for a laugh humour means a lot to me <laughs> thank you so much Kim thanks Al thank you <laughs>